Welcome to the KDB Review Podcast. I'm Andy Davis and this is episode two of season 10 for those keeping count. Now, if you listened to the previous episode, you'll have heard me say that I was at the KBSA conference at the Belfry, which I was. Today's episode is also from that event and I had recorded an intro while I was there telling you all about it. But I've been that because last week, very exciting, our little show here was shortlisted for a big award and my ego can't resist telling you all about it. And it's not just any award, it's Podcast of the Year. Yeah, this is at the PPA, the Professional Publishers Association, and it's their Independent Publishers Awards. So this is basically the big trade body for the magazine publishing industry. So it's judged by our peers, and that makes it very exciting indeed. Now, we actually won this award in 2020 at the height of the lockdowns. So to get on the shortlist again is so gratifying. And as someone who is part of a small team that organises a big awards, it's really interesting to be on the other end of the process and to experience what a thrill it is to see your name up there. So very excited and winners are announced on November the 24th. So if, if we are lucky enough to win, you'll probably hear me shouting from wherever you are. But back to today's episode, and it's a really, really interesting discussion between some top retailers. It was billed as the big debate at the KBSA conference, and it did cover several topics. But here, we're going to concentrate on two. Firstly, how KBB retailers view the inclusive market and how big a business opportunity there is there. And then there's a pretty fiery debate about apprenticeships that I promise you, you really don't want to miss. But first... How are you getting on with your entries for the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2024? What do you mean you haven't started? Well, fair enough. You've got until the closing date of 5pm on Thursday, November the 16th. But I highly recommend not being the person frantically mashing submit at 16.59 and 59 seconds. It's totally free to enter and we've got categories for retailers, designers, installers and suppliers. For all the info you need, go to kbbreview.com forward slash awards. And that link is in the episode description. Okay, on to our big debate and our panel of retailers. And as you'll hear from this list, they are all no strangers to this very podcast. We have Luke Wedgbury from Colville Kitchens in Leicestershire, Elizabeth Pantling-Jones from Lima Kitchens in Milton Keynes, Graham Robinson from Halcyon Interiors in Wigmore Street, and Joanna Geddes from Kitchens by J.S. Geddes in Kilmarnock. So for our first half of this, we're going to look at inclusive and multi-generational kitchens and bathrooms. Big business, of course, or they certainly have the potential to be big business. But the question of whether or not the independent KBB retail sector is really taking advantage of it as a commercial opportunity, not just a moral one, was the first subject. So here's Elizabeth Pantling-Jones explaining why she thinks the market is so important to independents in particular. All of us here, we would say that 55 and over are the people who have the spare income to be able to invest. And they've potentially already done it once before, experienced the stress and the mistakes that they've already made once. By coming to someone such as ourselves in the room, they have an expectation of being able to get professional advice and being able to advise them on how their investment can continue to work for them through the changing in age and physical capabilities is an important part of it. For Graham Robinson, this is just a continuation of the natural way that he and independents everywhere approach every client every day as individuals with individual needs. It's an individual thing, a kitchen. So if that client's going to get older or is old, then you just design it appropriately. So it's getting to know that client and getting to know what they actually want and learning from them and doing it right. Sometimes people say, this is the last time I'm going to do it. A bit morbid, but it may be the last time. So um, do it right. 
So while this market is huge, Joanna Geddes questions whether suppliers, and by default their products, really understand what it is people want and need. I know, I know we've been talking about inclusivity um, with the aging population, but I think it's important to speak about inclusivity as a whole for the kitchen industry because that's things that we come up against daily. I mean, for example, I've got a client at the moment who is partially sighted and the inclusivity in terms of the appliances out there it's very poor, actually. Um, when I started looking at it, she needed a, an oven that's got really big buttons on it. It's maybe speaking to her. And to find one from a reputable supplier is very difficult, actually. So I'm um, just talking about someone partially sighted, but obviously there's many things. Wheelchair use, it could be cultural differences as well that we need to think about inclusivity with. So I think with the aging population, I think I'm probably quite lucky in a sense that most of my clients are quite old. So I've been used to an older generation of clients and I think meeting their needs is becoming slightly easier actually with the help from suppliers. So the likes of Blum having access to different space towers, these types of things. These are things now that not only the aging population want, but everyone wants that. You know, it makes everyone's life a bit easier. It's just that... It's a side note that it's for the aging population. Sometimes, if I can be as bold to say, as the industry can do things as a token gesture, say we're looking like we're doing something about it, but are we? I think certainly with new builds, which we're involved a lot in now, there are things that are for wheelchair users. You've got a turning circle and these types of things. But that that's great, the wheelchair can turn, but you've made no assumption of how they're going to reach the wall units or, you know, you've put nothing into place about that. It's at times a half-hearted gesture. Luke Wedgbury then raises the very valid point that this market needs to be approached by gauging whether it is a business opportunity or not. That, he says, is the only way it will stick. And this is particularly true for suppliers. If we're going to get real, if there's no profit in there, then they're not going to they're not going to be interested. So they need to come up with some some solution for that. Now, new builds is great because more legislation is coming in, more regulations. So when we do new build properties, we have to think about all these different things that make them more inclusive. My average age and, and a lot of people's average age target market here is indeed fifty five plus. Mm. And when we sell a kitchen to somebody who's fifty five plus, let's be honest, we're selling it for life, right? We're we're not saying it's going to last you ten years. We're saying this is going to this is going to see you out this kitchen. So we can now start to think about what can we put into that design now. When you're 55, you don't need it now, but I can build it into the design because in 10, 15, 20, 30 years' time, you are probably going to use it, and this kitchen is going to last you that, that, that amount. So I think it's almost like an upsell. And, and manufacturers, I think, are catching up really quickly. I know Symphony do some great work. They, they, they work with people, and they've got, they've got their own defined areas in their marketing suite. So that, and that's, that's accessible to me as a retailer. I can access that if I need to. So I think manufacturers are, are getting there. So at this point in the debate, the question was put to the audience whether they would have a dedicated display for inclusive products, and the answer was a pretty conclusive no. Here's Luke Wedgbury again. I think it's ultimately in regards to the return on investment in the showroom. So if you have a showroom and you say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to dedicate 30% of that showroom specifically for this need, is that space going to earn its money? No, it's not. And that's, I think that's the, that's the barrier. We would love to show what's available in, in maybe one display. That would be wonderful. But we have to look at how hard that display works for the business. And ultimately, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work hard enough. So I think that's why that number is so high. 
Independents are all about customer service and guiding the client towards the kitchen or bathroom that is right for them as individuals. This personal touch could be enough to help customers with the most individual needs without the need for specific signposted display space. Here's Graham Robinson and then Joanna Geddes. It comes down to the individual. If the individual that you meet in the showroom can explain what they can and can have and adapt to kitchen, then I don't think it's a barrier not to have a display. As independents, we always strive for our displays to be different and our showrooms to have a different feel. I think whenever I have, using it as the example, if I ever have had wheelchair users buying kitchens from me, they've come to an independent firstly because they're looking for expertise that possibly they don't feel they're getting from the sheds. I mean, I do agree with you. I would like to see an area in a lot of studios that is designated as an accessible kitchen. But as Graham was saying earlier, you know, the kitchen doesn't need to look like it's for a disabled person. So as you're walking around that studio, to the untrained eye, how are you even going to know that it is an accessible kitchen? It should just look as vibrant, as colourful, as design-led as any other kitchen. It just so happens that it can work for multi-generational or wheelchair users. So perhaps there's a gap in the market for more dedicated showrooms who specialise in this inclusivity area. Now that guarantees specialist expertise, but do people really want to define themselves in that way? Here's Elizabeth Pantling-Jones, Graham Robinson and then Luke Wedgbury. I think for someone to be able to do that, they would need to be looking at quite a wide area to be servicing, to be able to keep it within the constraints of what we work to, which is about 20 to 25 miles. I don't think that that would be hugely beneficial. And also it comes back to the point of trying to get a kitchen that people want to put on Instagram that still has all of those lights because this is the world that we do now live in and it not be overwhelmingly accessible. And accessibility goes far beyond wheelchair use and being able to get things out of the unit is the grip. It's lifting a kettle, it's being able to lift things out of the oven. It's being able to involve children. We're not only looking at older people. A lot of the work that we've done in the past is taken into consideration clients who have autistic children and the needs that they have for the kitchen and during the process as well, which is something that should be considered. And coming to specialist is what I think people expect us to be able to manage. But I think it's still personal. Where we've done the kitchen, where we've done Corey and worked up that are low down so when they're on the wheelchair they're, they're smooth on their legs we've done connectivity with the hood so the hood comes on when the hob comes on because they can't reach the hood tap to the side of the sink it's all little things that mm. women can do to make a kitchen per- perfect for whoever it might be whether in the wheelchair whether they can't see whether they're old whether they're young do we as retailers see it as a specialist thing do we take it on board and go well we're going to have a certain percentage of our clients who are going to who are going to want these needs and we need to cater for those Or do we see it as a specialist thing that we kind of go, listen, I understand where your needs are. We can't quite deliver that in a specialist way we'd like to, but we can recommend this company. So someone in the audience then asks who the brands are that are really getting it right. Symphony have already been name-checked, of course, but it turns out that that question doesn't have a straightforward answer, as far as Joanna Geddes is concerned. I find that really difficult, if I'm honest, um, because I find that every time there's been a disability presented to me, it's been a different disability. And I think there's not an umbrella where one brand will work for everything. When I was looking for an induction hall for this partially site, I found a brand called Google, never heard of it. You know, so then I think, well, for me, is, is that good 
of me as a retailer to promote a brand that I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know their servicing. I don't know how good the appliance is. So me personally, I, I wouldn't say there's a specific appliance brand out there that I'm, I'm overly keen on. But what I would say is that most of our furniture manufacturers have systems in place for certain types of disabilities. So are there specifications on appliances that work well? What do retailers want for their clients? Here's Graham, Luke and Joanna. Knobs on ovens. People want a knob on an oven now, rather than touch. That doesn't, that doesn't mean if you're disabled or old, young people want knobs on ovens as well. I think a good point is also the, the very few that we've done, safety is, is the top thing. Is the appliance going to be safe? That's what people want to know. So what specifically, what's, what's different about this oven that makes it safe compared to that oven? What's different about that hob that makes it safe compared to that hob? So safety is, uh, is quite high on, on people's uh, list when it comes to a brief on these kind of projects. Yeah, not okay. to mention a brand, but Neff Hide and Slide Oven's a good one because the door's out of the way when they're in the wheelchair. And the telescopic shelf. Yeah, have an instant boiling water tap, maybe a cooker. So you're not holding a kettle, not pouring a kettle, you've got instant boiling water. I just think simpler appliances. I think it, we have lost simplicity a wee bit. We're just striving to be different from each brand. And we've got a lot of functions on there that people do not value. And when we do our appliance demonstrations, there's always a new function. And I'm thinking, what the heck are we using that for? You know, I'm having to relate it to something. So I think simplicity. Okay, we're going to move on to apprenticeships now. And this is clearly a very hot topic as the skill shortages, particularly in installation, are very acute in the short term, but are projected to get even worse in the long term if industry-wide action isn't taken. For those pushing the agenda, formal apprenticeships are the answer. However, for our retailers here, it really isn't that simple. Here's Elizabeth and then Joanna. So we do have an apprentice and before I say everything I'm going to say, I really want to be an advocate for this, but I don't think that we're at a point that I feel that, that I can be. So there have been a lot of reasonings in the past as to why apprenticeships haven't been taken off and, and for us to take apprentices on. And I find it really frustrating because the reasons that are given just wouldn't be acceptable in a business and in the way that we've all been setting up and operating why these things aren't applied to the apprenticeship role so I have tried year after year to get onto some of the apprenticeships and not had phone calls back and I think that if you can't even get the call contact right how can you blame the industry for a lack of uptake how can you take on an apprenticeship and for us, be nearly two years down the line, having been told this person's going to be passing with a distinction, which is great, and I'm really, really pleased for him. But I have no idea what the competencies are. I have no idea what another person on that course has learned. There isn't any guidance. There is a sheer lack of communication. For me, as an employer of six people in their 20s, that one apprenticeship isn't bringing anything more to the table than what I'm already getting from the, the younger employees that I have. I'm a big advocate for supporting young people. Out of 10 of us, two of us are directors. Six of them are in their 20s. We are doing that and we are finding it easier and more effective doing that without the apprenticeship. And we know the guidance that is being given and we understand what's happening. We're not getting emails. I've had a message today. Oh, by the way, I've got an assessment on Friday. I've already planned the work and this is someone who is 
now at a point who should be taking on their own installations and be free to start making us a profit on the investment that we've already made. He's been trained with a subcontractor at our cost because we want to change the way that our business is going to grow. And we, we need to see that. I think I totally agree with Elizabeth in that um, the investment of time in a small business into an apprenticeship is a worrying step at times to take when you don't know if you're going to be able to retain that employee at the end of it. We train everyone that comes into our business, whether they're an apprentice or not. But I think there's so much investment, um, monetary and time, that if you lose that apprenticeship after four years, that's a worrying thing for and, and, and a, a whole left actually a bit in a small business. If we continue to keep doing that, there's a massive investment in outlay. But on the flip side of that, I do see it's going to be a real issue in years to come that we don't have skilled tradespeople. For Luke Wedgbury, his problem with the overarching debate around this issue is that he feels everyone is looking at retailers to solve what is an industry-wide problem. The help they need just isn't there. I feel so passionate about this because as business owners, and let's, let's call us business owners for a second in regards to retailers, we are under so much pressure anyway. I've had conversations at this conference of people who are turning over 200,000, some people are turning over 4 million. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. We're still at some point having to buy the tea bags and the loo roll and all the rest of it and all that kind of stuff. We're, we're, we're business owners, right? And as an industry, yes, we do have to step up, but all of the pressure is on us. So on top of all the things that we have to do, the industry as a whole now says, everything that you've been doing is great, but you need an apprentice now. I mean, what could we get blind me? Okay, so we need an apprentice to do it. Yes, you need an apprentice because the industry is suffering. So it's all on you. You have to go and get an apprentice. So we kind of go as an industry, okay, uh, well, where do we go? And then everyone just stops because there is nowhere to go. It's not easy. It is frustrating. It's very frustrating because... We need more success stories. We need more people to come forward and say, we had an apprentice and this is what he or she did and now look at them. I've got two businesses and my first business, Coldwell Kitchens, we have an apprentice. He's now two and a half years in. He's great. He's one of our installers. He's doing really well. And then we have a second business. We have a kitchen house franchise and we, uh, we employed a junior CAD technician 18 months ago and now she's gone through the ranks. She's now a branch manager. But I've, I've done it differently. So I didn't go to a, a training provider or an apprenticeship provider. I just went, I want somebody young and I'm going to bring them into the business and I'm going to train them that way. So I found that quite easy. This is a very interesting question. Just what is the benefit of embarking on a formal apprenticeship scheme rather than just employing someone and training them up yourself? It's clearly an option that most retailers would and do use. So what's the difference? Earlier in the conference, Barry Moss from apprenticeship advisory company Leap had given a really interesting presentation explaining how apprenticeships worked and why they were important. However, now in the audience for this retailer debate, Barry took the opportunity to stick his hand up and answer this question, and he's discussing it here with Elizabeth Pantling-Jones. So first off, I, I totally agree with everything that everybody said. It's not easy, it's complicated, it's challenging. If everybody was doing what you guys are doing and bringing in new diverse talent into the industry, we wouldn't need apprenticeships, but they're not. The benefit of bringing someone in on an apprenticeship is some of the stuff we talked about this morning, that support that they get throughout that process and the training that they get is what you're doing. They get that work-based learning from you, but it's standardized to the industry, which is beyond what you do. 
So we train AI as part of our core content. We train retrofit as part of our core content. We train modern methods of construction as part of our core content. What they learn with you is how to deal with your business and your, your customers, your product. So that, that's the job. But what they learn is about the industry. That's the bit that's missing. I have been told this comes down to the provider that you... 100%. But at no point have us as employers been told what that standard is. And I've gone to multiple places to understand what that standard is. I still have no idea. So someone could come to me and say, I've done this and I'll have a certain expectation. But that expectation may or may not be accurate. So, so part of the funding rules, so the rules that I have to adhere to to deliver that standard, a design technician standard, is that you as the employer have to agree that the standard that Lerland is going on is correct. So if you're doing an apprenticeship with a provider that hasn't done that, they're not doing their job. So how do you, how do you therefore correct it? How do you vet your provider? How do you correct the issues that you then have? By jumping up on stage and talking about apprenticeships and saying, come and talk to me. It's opportunity. So one organisation I work with, when they put an advert out for an apprenticeship, they get 22 applicants on average for every apprenticeship they put out there. So 21 people are not getting a job as an apprentice. There aren't enough jobs out there. No one's giving people opportunity for those. So no one's advertising a job as an apprentice. That's the challenge that we have. Employers have got the, the, the rough end of this, you're right. It's all put on you. What you just said was spot on. It's all put on you. It's all your responsibility. My argument is, what's the choice? I can't change government as much as I'm trying, trust me. They, they, they all get the ump with me. It's, it's fine. I don't mind that, and I'll keep doing that. KBSA get involved. Every other federation get involved. We're trying to put as much weight behind it as possible to say what you need, what you want. But if... The government look at this and go, well, go and Google it now and, and find a, an apprentice design position. They'll just go, well, there's no one. Industry don't need it. They don't want it because they're not asking for it. If industry don't shout about it, if industry don't do something about it, the government's not going to bother because there's four to five billion pounds sitting in a pot that they're just taking back into the treasury. That's your money. You can spend it. For Joanna Geddes, though, it comes down to detail and investment. An apprenticeship needs to do a job that fits in with the company's needs, not the other way around. It's all very well and good with the apprenticeships, but when I sent one of our apprentices to college, he came back and told me he knew how to fit a PVC window. I'm not interested in that. That is of no value to me at all. Yep. So it's all very well that they're, you're not shouting about it and we're not sending people to the courses. But see if the courses are not tailor-made to our industry. We're wasting time, we're wasting resources and sending these young people there not to give us enough back for the money that we're investing. So there's need these tailor-made courses, apprenticeships, or like you said, in-house apprenticeships. They, they need to be more tailor-made. A college will only train what they can sell locally. So that's it. So if, if it's an installer, mm -hmm. they'll do a plumbing course. But an installer needs to be a plumber. They need to be an electrician. Mm -hmm. They need to be a carpenter. They need to be a painter, decorator, and, and, yeah. and plasterer. They, all these things they need to be. So colleges will only train what they want to train. Yeah. Providers are meant to deliver work-based learning. Yeah. If you send them to college, they're going to learn college stuff. Yeah. If they train with you, that's why I said earlier on, you guys are the experts. If you know what you want, train the people. 
to do what you want them to do and do it through the the guise of an apprenticeship that's the route to go down or don't do apprenticeships this is controversial don't do apprenticeships but if all of you take on a new person into your industry that's never worked in this industry if everybody in this room did it today and did it every year from now to 2030 we wouldn't have an issue which would be great of course and everyone probably would do it if one thing wasn't a factor money in real terms how much does it actually cost to have an apprentice here's elizabeth patling jones and luke wedgbury doing some rough sums one of the things you need to consider is how old is the apprentice because the incentives vary depending on age also restrictions around how long or if you can use the apprenticeship salary are involved you then potentially have your provider's fees if you're discussing installers you then have tool setup safety gear and you know your paye on top of that you could easily be mounting up to fifty thousand in your first year by the time you've got all of the equipment a full-time salary paye pension contributions this is you know, you've got those if you if you take on an employee anyway. What and it comes back to yeah, if you're not getting the feedback and not getting the information and not getting something solid, why would you make a marginally different investment and have someone out of the business potentially at short notice? It's a good point because from a monetary value, that's just the measurable part. Because if you have an apprentice coming to your business and let's say they're a design. Uh, the idea is, Barry and I have spoken about this, that they're going to shadow one of your designers, right? And that's going to slow your designer down. And that's going to cost your business money. And it's the same with the with, with employed installers. You say to an employed installer who's on your books, right, this is, this is Michael. He's now going to shadow you. I need you to train him up. You've got two years, because in two years' time, I need him to be able to fit a kitchen. And, and that installer is going to go, crying out loud, you, but you want this kitchen done in a week? And I've got to train this guy as well? So it, there's, the, there's the things you can't measure. Having an apprentice has a big is a big ripple effect on on, on your on your business. It's, it costs a lot of money. It's the cost of mistakes as well. And if you've got a designer, you have to accept if someone's coming on initially, you are probably going to lose more leads than if an experienced designer did it initially as well. It's something you have to accept, and again, it isn't measurable. I wouldn't be surprised if it could be double. And my question would be, what's the alternative? Just employing people and investing in youth, and and we're in a room full of people who are passionate about the industry and their businesses. And the hope is that they do just employ new talent, fresh ideas, think, okay, I might not know about AI or the new trends or something. I need to be challenged and I need to bring people on board. So there we are. There's clearly still a lot of debate to be had around the best ways this industry can tackle the skill shortage, but it is a paradox. Retailers, quite understandably, want people trained today in the very specific skills they need for their business. But without the long-term commitment of time and money across the sector, courses that cover those specific skills will never be developed. However, there are specific apprenticeships now for installation, so I really do recommend at least finding out as much as you can on how it all works. A very good place to start is this very podcast, of course. Episode 5 of Season 9 is called How to Get an Apprentice, and there's loads of info in that discussion, so I'll put a link in this episode's description. I'll also put in the link to kbbreview.com forward slash awards, which is where you can find out everything you need to know about entering the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2024. Remember, the closing date is 5pm on Thursday, November the 16th. That's kbbreview.com forward slash awards. See you next time. Thank you.